Hello and welcome to Poor Richard's Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the Association for Diplomatic Studies and Training. For more, check out our website at adst.org. ADST, American Diplomacy, Warts and All. The Kurdish people, who make up about 17% of the population of Iraq and inhabit a semi-autonomous region in the north of the country, were persecuted violently in the 1980s and 90s. Under the rule of Saddam Hussein and the Ba'ath Party, tens of thousands of Kurds were killed by the regime during the 1988 Iran-Iraq War with chemical weapons, mass executions, and deportations. After the Persian Gulf War in 1991, the Kurds rose up in revolt against Saddam, led in part by Jalal Talabani, who would go on to serve as Iraq's president. This uprising, however, was brutally crushed, and many Kurds fled to safe zones provided by the United States and its allies under Operation Provide Comfort. Peter Galbraith, serving as a staff member for the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations, visited Talibani in March of 1991 and was given access to a vast collection of official Iraqi documents captured by Kurdish forces. The documents chronicled a systematic campaign of war crimes and atrocities perpetrated by the Hussein regime against the Kurds. Galbraith was interviewed by Charles Stewart Kennedy in 1999 about his acquisition of the documents and his quest to get them safely back to the U.S. for review. Uh, when I was there in March of 91 with Talibani that night in Dahak, one of the things that he told me was that the Kurds that his party, the PUK, had captured the huge numbers of documents, of Iraqi documents, uh, and in fact, uh, because when they, the uprising had taken place in, in early March, the Kurds had quickly seized the cities of Suleimania, Dahak, Sako, the town of Shaklawa, Kirkuk, and in each of these cities were the headquarters of, of the secret police, Mukhabarat, and, and other intelligence agencies um, of the army and of the Ba'ath Party. And by and large, the, the, the takeover had been quick. The Iraqis had had no time to dispose of the files or to remove them. So these had fallen into, into Kurdish hands. And uh, in the case of some of these files, though, particularly those from Suleimania and Shaklawa and Kirkuk, uh, the PUK had transported them out of the cities and into the hills. Uh, but, as I said, in um, March, Talibani had mentioned it, but because things were so chaotic and because the issue that I was focused on in my conversations with him was whether he would be negotiating with Saddam Hussein, how the United States could help the uprising, uh, and I was also, we were simply watching events unfold, including the Iraqi onslaught. Uh, we, we really didn't discuss this at, at any great length. However, uh, in September of 91, I returned for about 10 days to go to, into northern Iraq. Um, uh, the, uh, uh, Operation Provide Comfort was well underway. I uh, <clears throat> flew into, um, uh, it was helicoptered from Diyarbakir uh, to, um, I guess, a, to, to a resort near Zako, I think. Um, and um, big, big feast with um, uh, Talibani and uh, Sami Abdul Rahman and, and, and uh, the American general, who, um, uh, Colonel uh, Richard Knapp, who became a folk hero among the Kurds. Um, 
a big, big banquet, and then uh, provide comfort. And the Blackhawks uh, helicoptered me uh, over to um, a landing place that was uh, to the east of Shaklawa uh, in northeastern Kurdistan. Uh, from and then from there, I went went was Tal. I went with with Talibani, <coughs> and in his convoy, we drove down to Shaklawa, uh, where I stayed with him for in, in the house that he had for uh, three or four days, uh, and uh, while there, he told me. Uh, 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 that they still had these documents, or, or he said that he had the documents. Um, and I said to him, <clears throat> look, Joel, if these documents, if they remain in northern Iraq, they almost certainly will be captured again by the Iraqis. This is great evidence of, of the terrible crimes that have been committed against the Kurdish people. Um, uh, we ought to get them out of northern Iraq, uh, where and where they where they can be kept more safely, and also mm -hmm. where they can, where they get they can be exploited for war mm -hmm. crimes, and and be of use to historians. And Talibani, uh, who is is a, actually a wonderful man, um, he's uh, smart, taught himself, uh, he speaks quite good English, which he taught himself in the mountains, and mm -hmm. he never lived in an English-speaking country, never studied English formally. Um, uh, he immediately understood my point, yeah. and he said, yes, but I have some conditions. I will not give this to the U.S. government because I do not trust the U.S. government after Bush, what Bush mm -hmm. did to us, encouraging the uprising and then not helping us. Uh, but I will give it to you personally. Uh, and so we negotiated. He would give these documents to me personally. Um, so anyhow, um, we, we negotiated, uh, and he, uh, we, we agreed that the documents would be given to me, uh, but um, I would, um, but they would remain the property of, of the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan, of the political party. Uh, also, living with him was this boy named Tamor. Um, uh, and Tamor, uh, I talked to Tamor, uh, and he described an absolutely extraordinary tale, which is that uh, he was part of a large group of Kurds, I mean, seemingly systematic uh, deportations. Mm -hmm of Kurds who were relocated to the, from Kurdistan to the south of Iraq. And when he had gotten to the south of Iraq, they'd been offloaded on buses. There'd been several stops uh, where they'd gotten refreshments on. They'd been on the bus for 24 hours, 40, 36 hours. But they'd been, uh, 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 you know, toward the end of the journey, they'd gotten some water and so on. And then they'd been blindfolded and um, driven some distance, an hour or two, uh, offloaded, and he had lifted up his blindfold and had seen uh, that um, uh, the Iraqis were all these corpses, and, and then the Iraqis started, sh and, 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 and ditches, the Iraqis started shooting. 
uh, and he had fallen into the pit, uh, been shot uh, a couple of times in the back, um, but obviously uh, not so seriously. Um, the Iraqis had left, and a dark had fallen, darkness had fallen, the Iraqis had left. There was a, a girl there. He had talked to the girl, asked her to flee. She was too frightened to flee. He had fled. He had been found by a Shiite family who had taken care of him, nursed him back to health, somehow arranged clandestine medical care. Uh, and then after the uprising, uh, had been able to get back to northern Iraq. Anyhow, it was, it was an extraordinary tale. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and, and evidence of, of the one part of the onfall that was not really known before 1991, which was the systematic executions of large numbers of Kurds. Most of the atrocities of Saddam Hussein we knew before the invasion of Kuwait. We knew that he had used um, uh, chemical weapons uh, against uh, uh, Kurdish civilians. We knew about Halabsha. We knew about the use of chemical weapons after the Iran-Iraq war. We knew about the systematic destruction of all the villages of Kurdistan. I mean, I had seen and written about that, but also would have been evident from overhead, satellite photography, and so on. Um, <clears throat> we knew about the relocation of people to concentration camps. Um, we knew about the destruction of, of, of Kurdish, of the symbols, of monuments of Kurdish culture, the, the graveyards, the mosques, and so on. But uh, I, I think that there was not evidence, or no uh, evidence, of the deportations to the south, which turned out to be uh, systematic killings of uh, tens of thousands of people. And Tamor was one of the few survivors of this. Um, the other evidence of genocide beyond the documents, of course, was the systematic destruction of, of thousands of villages. And I, I suppose I saw at least a thousand of them traveling around, um, as well as small towns. I went to Kaladiza, which had been destroyed in 1987, or uh, Halapsha, which had been destroyed, I think, in 89. Um, uh, I. Um, I went into both uh, Erbil and, um, uh, which is the main Kurdish city, aside from Kirkuk, uh, and uh, Suleimania on that trip. Uh, and, but in order to go into these, I had to cross through Iraqi lines. It was a curious situation because the Iraqis had sur were surrounding the cities, but in the inside the cities, the Kurdish, the Peshmerga, the Kurdish guerrillas were essentially in control. And they, they, had a, they had a modus vivendi, a very narrow one, a very, um, not narrow, but very tentative one with the Iraqis. So that um, between uh, Saladin and Erbil, I believe it's possible it's between Saladin and Shaklawa. Saladin is halfway between um, uh, Shaklawa and Erbil. It's a um, resort town. Uh, later, Barzani made it his headquarters. But anyhow, there was a joint checkpoint manned by the Peshmergos uh, and the Iraqi army. Uh, so I would, to go into Erbil, I dressed up as a Kurd, baggy pants and uh, uh, cummerbund and so on. Um, and went in a, with a car full of Kurdish uh, 
guerrillas who were known to the Iraqis, so they didn't inspect carefully, uh, including a fairly prominent leader. Um, we went through the checkpoint and went around Erbil, which was, a, I, I describe it to people as like the bar scene out of Star Wars, mm -hmm. uh, because um, there were all these odd characters, and on one side of the street there were uh, Iraqi soldiers, and on the other side Kurdish Peshmerga, and periodically I'd come with a Peshmerga and they'd say, you want to talk to an Iraqi soldier? So we'd basically capture the soldier for a little while and ask him some questions. Gave a very good picture of what had happened at the end of the Gulf War, uh, which is basically around December, January of 19, December 1990, January 1991, uh, Iraqi troops on the front line, which were heavily Shiites and heavily Kurds, basically um, had gotten leave to go home and wisely hadn't gone back. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's quite likely that, uh, 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 although this is anecdotal, I think it was essentially correct, uh, that, that when we did invade uh, Kuwait in um, February of uh, 91, we were kicking in an empty door. There were yeah. not ma all that many Iraqi troops there. The other evidence I had for that, incidentally, was a ra rather small number of, um, of, uh, uh, of, 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 of people who reported deaths. I mean, very many reported deaths in the Anfal campaign, as this campaign targeted on the Kurds, which included the poison gas, but not very many people reported deaths of, of, of soldiers who would have been conscripts. Um, coming out of uh, Erbil, we had a, uh, an incident um, uh, which some people later said, said that the that Taliban had staged for my benefit, but uh, uh, there was, um, I, I'm not sure that that's true. Uh, in fact, I suspect it wasn't. But uh, uh, things had, had been a, a clash and uh, the Iraqi soldiers were all lining the road with their guns pointed at us. We drove by without incident. At the checkpoint, the Kurds had captured the Iraqi soldiers, and there was one very terrified uh, sergeant uh, whose hands were tied behind his back. Uh, I tried to be sure that they, no harm was going to come to him, and I don't think any did. Eventually, a, a, an Iraqi officer showed up and they negotiated his release. Uh, going into Suleimania, um, that I didn't go in disguise, even though the Iraqis were surrounding it. Um, we, we, I went around Suleimania uh, um, and went to the secret police headquarters, the Um, uh, and uh, that was very chilling. There were underground prison cells, hooks where people were tortured, elect wires where, where people got electric shock, uh, and then a trailer, a couple of trailers, uh, with women's clothing, children's clothing. This was described as the raping room, uh, where the women would be raped, and, um, uh, and, and often they made videotapes. Now, the Kurds captured a number of the Iraqi videotapes uh, of executions. Uh, uh, at this time, I also saw one of a torture, um, although it was a, a little bit of beating. It was a a testing of some kind of truth drug, mm -hmm. um, uh, and um, the rape videos they said that they destroyed, uh, but the execution videos were, were chilling enough. Um, in the case of the guy who was tortured, it was kind of an interesting thing. Again, this was with a truth serum, but then when he didn't respond, the um, because uh, he was sort of drugged in the video. They, they beat him up a bit, slapped him around. 
Anyhow, after seeing it, I was walking on the street and I saw the man <laughs> who had survived uh, and uh, was definitely a better frame of mind than, than he had been in the video. Uh, anyhow, on, on the documents, uh, uh, after Talibani and I had reached this agreement, um, I continued on my trip with Talibani, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that at maybe at another time. Uh, but I came back to the United States uh, and began to uh, work on how to get the documents transported out uh, uh, because there were 14 tons of, tons of them that Talibani had. Uh, I wrote letters under Pell's signature uh, to the Department of Defense uh, asking if they would transport it. Uh, the um, I worked with Leon Firth who was Gore's foreign policy advisor to get Gore um, <clears throat> uh, uh, to weigh in, which he did uh, very strongly. Uh, and eventually, after many months and of bureaucratic delay and uh, uh, dealing with extraneous issues, which I found very frustrating because I, I was afraid that that the the documents might be lost. Uh, Agreement was the Pentagon agreed that they would transport them out, and there were complications. For example, where they would be awaiting storage, uh, would they be where the uh, there was a small uh, uh, military uh, MCC, a military coordination council in uh, Zako? You know, uh, would they be willing to take custody of these documents? Would there be a terrorist threat to them if they had the documents? I mean, every issue you can imagine was yeah. worried about to the extent of losing sight of the important yeah. thing, which was to protect the documents and get them out. Uh, uh, event, but eventually agreement was reached that, that they would take them out. And so I went back to, in um, March of 1992, uh, to secure the uh, final uh, arrangements with Talibani and to see if Barzani wouldn't be prepared to give his documents, because he had uh, a, a collection as well. It turns out four tons, a much smaller amount. Uh, uh, saw uh, Talibani. I'd also had a Nightline crew because Nightline was making a documentary about all of this. I uh, worked out the details, went up to the mountains uh, with Talibani's nephew, um, Aras, um, and uh, saw where they were stored right on the Iranian border. Uh, in, in, in this case, um, uh, was somewhere in Shaklawa in in, a, uh, in in the secret police headquarters still, which the Kurds now control. Those were fairly orderly. Um, the ones up in the mountains uh, um, near um, uh, ends with an M. I have to think of the town. Um, they were in a, a very leaky building. A lot of the documents were wet. Um, they were stuffed into grain sacks and uh, uh, ammunition crates. But they were quite quite something. I, there were film archives. Uh, you could look at the film. Uh, there were pictures of uh, Senators Dole and Simpson visiting northern Iraq that had been cut up. Uh, there were pictures of David Newton, our, our previous right. ambassador, uh, with, you know, uh, uh, in some kind of social group, but pi mm -hmm. clearly pictures taken clandestinely, mm -hmm. um, but nothing incriminating. Right. 
the files in Chaklawa um, that I examined, uh, they, the files of executions of a group of 67 shepherds. Uh, and, and the files were quite something. Uh, the, uh, uh, it began with, a, it was in a, a, a sort of crumbling yellow uh, folder uh, out of like construction paper. And the uh, first file was an inquiry from some commander who had captured these shepherds. What should I do with them? Uh, the reply, you know, treat them in accordance with here and here. I don't remember the precise um, wording, but it, it, the the idea is this: treat them in accordance with paragraph five of the Bath Party decree oh. of such and such a date. A message back: they they have been disposed of in accordance with article with with uh, paragraph five. Uh, and then mm -hmm. this followed with 67 death certificates, mm -hmm. followed by um, uh, receipts from family members yeah. uh, claiming some some of the bodies. Yeah. Um, anyhow, and, and, and there's just tons of stuff like this. Uh, I, um, I got the Kurds to box up the first two boxes, which I then transported um, back to the Tzazako and delivered to the uh, uh, the U.S. military with the uh, MCC, and in fact, um, I, I guess helicoptered out with me uh, out of northern Iraq. Um, no, no, I didn't. Um, sorry, just delivered it to the MCC, um, and eventually all the documents were transported to a warehouse near Zako, guarded by. Kurds who were being paid for by the MCC, and then uh, about three weeks later, they were taken by helicopter to the Abakur and flown out on a C-5A uh, to the United States. The issue then came uh, of what to do with them. Um, initially, I, I, I thought of, um, well, of, of, of several options. Human Rights Watch was going to do research with them, but perhaps they could have custody. But they really didn't have the space, uh, and nor the security. Uh, Gore had, um, I talked to Gore and to Leon Firth, and he was an overseer uh, at Harvard, in essence, uh, the, the functional equivalent of a trustee. And so he'd gotten, he, he had the idea that they could go to Harvard, which had a, has a Middle East Studies Institute, uh, and, but then I got a call from um, a very embarrassed Dan Steiner, who was the legal counsel of Harvard, uh, saying, uh, well, we're not really very comfortable with the idea of having these documents. And it became clear that he was afraid that if Harvard had them, it, they would become subject of a terrorist attack. Maybe the Iraqis would blow up Widener Library. Yeah. So he, he didn't want to tell Gore this, so he wanted to kind of work it quietly with me yeah. that they wouldn't take it. So. That was the end of the Harvard option. And I went over to the Library of Congress, and we had a meeting there, Human Rights Watch was there, the Library of Congress, uh, discussing this whole issue. When, it, when I realized and, and that um, what I could do is uh, simply, by fiat, make these the files of the Foreign Relations Committee, and then the National Archives would have to take them, because mm -hmm. they have to take the files of, of, of committees. And so that's what I did. I, got, I declared them to be the files of the Foreign Relations Committee, just like any of the files in my own uh, safe, at, in, yeah. in my own um, uh, file cabinets in, in, in my office at the committee. Uh, the archives was forced to take them. 
Oh, they did a good job. They constructed a special room. Uh, <coughs> uh, we, we got a million dollar appropriation uh, to have all of these documents uh, uh, photo photographed and put onto CD-ROM mm -hmm. with a, a, a brief English language mm -hmm. cover sheet describing what each of the documents were. Uh, there are now 178 CD-ROMs, um, and they've been, they're now being used for research into Iraqi mm -hmm. war crimes. Uh, but uh, it is uh, the largest collection of, uh, of, of documents of war crimes of genocide uh, captured since the Second World War. The Kurdish people continued to suffer under Saddam's regime until the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq in 2003. The Kurds welcomed that invasion and cooperated with the coalition in toppling the Baghdad government. Peter Galbraith went on to serve as U.S. Ambassador to Croatia, a mediator in East Timor's first transitional government and a Deputy Special Representative for the United Nations in Afghanistan. The music for this podcast was provided by Carol Schmeidberger, licensed under Creative Commons. ADST is an independent nonprofit organization located in Arlington, Virginia. ADST's oral history collection, begun in 1986, contains over 2,500 oral histories, unveiling the horrifying, thought-provoking, and the absurd events that helped shape foreign policy. If you have enjoyed listening to this podcast, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to allow ADST to continue its work at www.adst.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>